of our series, The Walking Dead, let me just start by asking you some questions really quick. Some of you in this room are going to resonate completely with what I'm asking. Others of you will from the past standpoint, but not from today. So here's the question. Do you ever feel like you're just simply going through life, waking up, going through the motions? No matter how hard you try, you just don't ever seem to get where you really want to be or maybe even where you thought you would be at this point. You're constantly frustrated by the way things are turning out. And what's worse is that you don't even know what to do about it. Well, if that's you today, you come to the right place. My hope is to offer you some truth, some hope to help point you in the right direction. In fact, Paul actually describes your condition in Colossians chapter 2. He says this in verse 13. He says, you were dead, and the you there is all the believers in the city of Colossae. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Now, if we just stop the verse there, this is a great descriptor of all of us before we came to Jesus Christ. You'll notice a then, which means something is changing grammatically, but before we came to Christ, this describes where we were, where we are. And some of you feel that way, dead. This is where we come up with the series, the title, Walking Dead. It's this idea, you're just walking around, going through the motions, going through life, just desperately hoping something will change. And today I love the title, World War Z. Not saying I saw the movie, but I did. And it was kind of weird. But it's this whole idea of, you ever see the movie, that this disease that takes over and it runs rampant and it quickly spreads and people are dying and running around dead and they don't even know it. And of course, it's got Brad Pitt as a hero like every great movie. But... This is the story of life. In the garden, something severely went wrong. And when it did, this, this what we call sin nature was passed down from generation to generation, and now we carry it in us today, and it's a disease that's running rampant, and it is killing off humanity, literally. And some of you are feeling it today, and there's a reason why. See, I don't know if you know this, and you may be visiting today, you may have had a hunch, or maybe just think I'm weird for what I'm about to say, and guess what, I'm okay with it, I'm weird for a lot of reasons, this is just one of them. Here's what the Bible teaches us, you have an enemy. Now, we call him Satan. The word Satan literally is a Hebrew word, hasatan, and in the Hebrew, it literally just means the adversary. And what that means is in the spiritual world, in a world you literally cannot see, Outside of this physical world, there is somebody who is opposing you. Jesus tells us in John 10, 10, that that Satan, that enemy, that person who hates you, he wants three things for your life. He wants to steal, he wants to kill, and he wants to destroy. And he is willing to bait you into those three things at every possible turn. Anything he can do to ruin your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your, uh, your health and life, anything he can do to, to get you addicted to anything, good, bad, or otherwise, I'm addicted to Cleveland Browns football, and Satan has me. I cannot seem to let it go. And now it's draft season, so every Cleveland Browns fan has hope again. <laughs> but Satan literally wants to kill you. And in that same passage, John 10, 10, Jesus says, but I have come to give you life to the full. Or in one translation, it says, life that really is life. In other words, this game you've been playing called life, it's just a game. It's a facade. It's one that the enemy has tricked you into believing is life. This is why, and I could give you quote after quote after quote of rich, famous celebrity person who has the world by the tail, so to speak, and yet they're so miserable. Michael Jackson, Han Solo, wait, I mean Harrison Ford. The list could go on. 
The people who've achieved and accomplished and gathered and collected and are world famous and yet simply are miserable. Why? Because they have an enemy who's got them right where he wants them. There's a great question. Does the enemy have you right where he wants you? It's the beginning of a new year, and in the beginning of a new year, we always tend to think differently, like, okay, I'm going to turn a corner. Things are going to be different this year, but do you really know how things are going to be different? And I have this belief. I just do. Bad assumptions, bad beliefs equal bad actions. So if you don't have the right belief system, if you don't have the right assumptions, you'll make bad decisions in light of that. And so what I want to do in this message is for those of you who call yourselves followers of Jesus Christ, I want to help you understand the most foundational truth to all of the Bible. And if I can help you understand that, then by the end of the message, we can live out from that. Now, if you're visiting with us today, I want to give you an inside look into the fact that God wants to do this in your life. He wants to bring you freedom. And Jesus says it this way, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. You don't have to wonder about it. He has set you free. So how do we get there? Well, just a couple verses later in Colossians chapter 2, if you have your Bible open, you may want to hold this passage. We're going to come back to it a lot. But Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 15. It says this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that he is Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I love this, but there's a lot in here that I don't fully get. What does it mean that Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities? Does that mean like governments and kingdoms? Like, uh, you know, like, I don't know, Saddam Hussein? Well, all of those things are under his control, but this is talking about the powers and the authorities in the unseen world, in the spiritual realm. He has done that, and he made a public spectacle of them. He literally shamed them publicly. When? When he triumphed over them on the cross. See, here's the thing. If we have a wrong belief today, then that teaches us to live wrongly today. If you believe today that Jesus is going to return, that's a right belief. If you believe that when Jesus returns, he's going to conquer Satan, that is a right belief. If you believe that Jesus has not yet conquered Satan, that's a wrong belief. And it's hard. Because like all of you, when I open my phone or my app or my computer, or if I turn on the news on the TV, and I see all the ways that this world is evil and cruel and mean and harsh, I start to wonder if God really has conquered anything. I start to wonder who really is in control. But it's passages like this because I believe the Bible is the ultimate truth that bring me back to this place over and over and over again and saying God did triumph in Jesus on the cross. But this word triumph is a fascinating word. If I'm correct in my studies, this word is only used twice in the New Testament and both times by Paul. And both times he's talking about the same thing. See, there's this thing in Rome, and it's called a triumphal procession. Now, we've heard of a triumphal entry, right? Jesus rides on the donkey, and they put down palm branches to sing Hosanna. Jesus, in some ways, is looking at that and mimicking that, but it's totally different. In a triumphal procession, there are over 350 historical documents that talk about a Roman triumphal procession. This is a well-documented historical event. Not only that, but we have coins and arches and all kinds of things documenting triumphal processions. In fact, if you were to go to, um, there's an arch that still exists today, and it's the triumphal procession celebration of when Rome came in and sacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and destroyed many Israels, Israelites and took down the temple, and there's an arch still telling of this story today through pictures. And 
all triumphal processions had certain things in common, though there were certain variations of things that were different. And here's a picture of, of what a triumphal procession would look like. And I know this is hard to see and hard to make out, and uh, I believe it's, we, we have this on our blog where the, where the outline is. Uh, I had too much in the outline for them fit in the app. So if you can kind of make in some of this here, I'm going to have them leave this up while I'm talking through it. But you can kind of see here's the, the, the governor or the ruler or the emperor, whoever it is that's, that won the battle. You could see here uh, some horses. I count at least two. There may be more. Um, this is a person carrying a trophy. You'll notice here, if you could make this out, he's got a crown on his head. And there are some various things going on here. Let me just walk you through some of the things that every one of these had in common. Let me just say this real quick. This is from the 1700s. So this was years, hundreds of years, after uh, Rome was already crushed and non-existent. But this is a tapestry trying to tell the picture of what actually happened in Roman procession. So Roman, Roman procession would take place when a king had conquered and killed at least 5,000 of the other army, at least 5,000 of the other group's people in their army. And then what they would do is they would gather together the armies, and then they would make this triumphal procession into the city. And while they were doing that, here's some of the things that would happen. The emperor would ride in the city on a white horse. Some historical documents say he would ride in on four white horses. That's just interesting if you know anything about Revelation. The emperor would be dressed in a tunic with palm designs on it. All these things are to point to the various Roman um, culture and Roman Greco-Roman gods. They would wear a purple toga laced with gold thread and it would be placed over the tunic. You could kind of see it here in this artist's rendering of what was happening. He would wear a crown on his head. This wasn't a gold crown. It was just a crown of victory and it was to show that he had won the battle. There were key elements all over the emperor, the governor. He would sometimes paint his face red to connect him with the god Jupiter, who was uh, the reigning god, especially over war as they were traveling in. Um, he would wear a red robe sometimes, or he would carry a scepter in his hand. The citizens all around, and you may see some back here, would be wearing white. Mind you of anything we talked about last week. The army would have various symbols celebrating the victory as well, all over them. Then the emperor would come into the city with his army. They would march to the temple of Jupiter. The people would gather around wearing white, hooping and hollering and singing his praises about how great he is. And then they would come up on the steps of the temple for Jupiter and they would reenact the battle right there for all to see that this king and his God are greater than all the other false people and their gods and their kings. And then there's one more piece. And this is what Paul's trying to get at. See, the greatest part, the, the public shaming, so to speak, of the triumphal procession was that after the king of Rome, the emperor of Rome, the governor, whoever's fighting the battle, after he had defeated the other army, he would capture the king and sometimes the king's family and he would bind this evil king from the other nation and he would march him along at the back of the parade dragging him along, forcing him to be seen by all of Rome as the weak one who lost the battle. And this was called a triumphal procession. Now come back with me and read Colossians 2, 15 again. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 
See, Jesus defeated Satan. Paul is drawing on this very cultural thing going on. I've read this passage a ton of times. I've taught on it before, even I think Easter last year, and I missed this thing that Paul is doing in the text because I hadn't made the connection yet to what he is doing. He's saying Jesus literally shamed Satan at the cross through his pain and his suffering, and then is not staying dead when Satan thought he won. He lost because in dying, he lives. In dying, he gains, and he gathered an army for himself. In fact, in another place, look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes this, but thank God, he has made us, those who love him, his captives, and he continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. There it is. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. So Jesus goes in and he conquers the enemy, destroys him, literally renders him powerless in the cross. And then he takes Satan's uh, army. He takes Satan's followers. That was us. And I know they're like, that's offensive. I know. I've been there. I played for the wrong team. I was on the wrong side. And then Christ set me free, and now I am free indeed. And I want that for you. And with all of this setup, now I want to turn our eyes to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And here's the thing I'm just going to say up front where I'm going today is probably the most debated text in all of the Bible. If not, it's in the top five easily. So what I'm going to do today is tell you where I land and why I land there, and I just want to do it in humility and accept up front there are godly men and godly women who disagree with me about some of these things. We all agree about the big picture. We disagree about some of these things, and that's okay, because the reality is Jesus is going to return one day, and when he does, we're probably all going to be wrong in some ways. Well, everybody else will be. Okay, there goes the humility part. I'm joking. Guys, I have no idea exactly how this is going to play out. I'm telling you why I landed where I landed as best as I can, but I don't have time to dig into it. So in the notes page that's on our blog, on the website, I give some books, some websites, some resources, some quotes that can actually help you understand the whole argument better, not just the part that I'm sharing with you, but can help you understand the other perspectives, because honestly, I'm not even going there really today, because I want to focus on this. This is what I believe is the most important message. Revelation 19, I'll do my best not to say a word until I'm done reading these, four, five, these five or six verses, 11 to 16. Just notice the triumphal procession language here. Then I saw heaven open, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses." From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Did you hear that? John just describes an apocalyptic, symbolic literature, a triumphal procession. Except for it's the final triumphal procession because it's the one of Jesus Christ coming back to finally and forever defeat his foe. Notice some of the comparisons. He has on a red robe. 
He has many crowns on his head, not just one crown, symbolizing the fact that he has ultimate authority. He is the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. He has an army dressed in white. He's raging a war. He is trustworthy and true. This is a righteous war. He himself is riding on a horse. Now, despite the fact that in this world it looks like Satan and evil are winning, John wants us to know unmistakably that we have a victor. And his name is Jesus. And I may not have convinced you yet because we're looking at a text that has to do with the return of Christ, which leaves you wondering, but does Jesus reign now? Has Jesus defeated Satan now? Because it doesn't feel like it in my life. I love this quote by David S. Clark. It comes from the book, The Message from Patmos. And he says this, Let the church remember that this rider on the white horse is the living Jesus. He is in the forefront of every battle. That just as he conquered the beast and the false prophet, so he will conquer every enemy. The rider on the white horse is still riding on. Let the church follow, clothed in linen, white and clean. See, the call for the church is to be one wearing white. By the way, that's why on January 31st of this month, we will wear white. We're going to literally have white for everybody. Encourage you to bring your own and we'll help you get that. We're going to have a white out party. That's going to be a baptism celebration of anybody who wants to unite with Christ on that day. And we're just going to throw a big old party as if this is happening. Wouldn't it be awesome, by the way, just saying, maybe start praying this. Jesus came back while we were throwing him a party. <clears throat> but he has to wait for the 11 o'clock service. Just saying, it'll be awesome. <laughs> he didn't have to do anything. No, here's a great question, isn't there? And we see all this language about triumphal procession. It looks like that's what John's trying to tell us, but there's something missing. Where's the climactic moment? Where's the shaming of the enemy publicly? Where's the enemy bound and being drugged behind our conquering king? It's not there. Until you get to Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and heavy chain in his hand. He sees the dragon. And just so you don't misinterpret who the dragon is, he's that old serpent who is the devil, Satan. In case you don't understand that, in the, in the very, very, very first book, the very first chapters of the first book, when Adam and Eve are walking in the garden and they're naked and unashamed, their lives are free from all the stress and worry and anxieties and struggles of this life, Satan shows up in the form of some sort of serpent. And he tricks Adam and Eve. And John's drawing on that imagery I've always thought it fascinating that possibly in that first garden story that maybe Satan didn't appear as a snake, but maybe he actually appeared as a dragon. I can't say that for sure. It's kind of irrelevant, but John doesn't want you to miss who he's talking about. So he gives you all these analogies. The dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan. What else do I have to call him so you understand who I'm talking about? And bound him in chains for a thousand years. Did you catch that? He's been conquered. He's been captured. He's been chained. And your king has decided that it's enough. I love Mark more in the way he says this in uh, his book, How to Dodge a Dragon. Though Satan attacks me, he is not in control. God bound him, God released him, and God will destroy him. It is God who holds the controls to time and eternity. It is God who holds it. My life in his hands, and though my suffering seems unbearable, God is in control, not the devil. If I could just trust him, he will sustain me through such tribulation. 
And that right there is the key. If I can just trust him, that he really does hold the whole world in his hands, that he really does have the answer for everything, that he really does know tomorrow, and if he knows tomorrow, then he can figure out today. If I could just trust him, then he will sustain me through everything I'm dealing with. But it brings up a great question, doesn't it? What does it mean that Satan is bound? Well, let me just say this real quick. Different people teach different things about this. Some people believe that these thousand years will be literal. Jesus will come back and he'll establish a thousand-year earthly kingdom. Some people believe that, um, and this is where I land, that the thousand years is not literal, it's symbolic, like the vast majority of the numbers in Revelation. Part of the reason I get there is the number 1,000 throughout the, the Bible it can be used symbolically. It's not always, but it can be. For instance, Peter tells us in his writings that to God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Peter isn't literally saying that every time we go through a 24-hour cycle, God goes, wow, that was a thousand years. Woo, I just keep getting older. He's just being symbolic. He's trying to say that God is outside of time. In the same way, there's a psalm, and I believe David wrote the psalm, and it says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean when you find a thousand and one hills, God didn't own the cattle on that hill? The psalmist was simply trying to say the number thousand represents God's bigness. He owns all the cattle on all the hills because the entire earth is his. I believe, I believe that we, the church, are living in the day of Satan's binding. That this is the millennial kingdom. If I'm wrong and Jesus comes back and sets up a literal millennial kingdom for 365,000 days, okay, he's still coming back. The goal is still for me to live like Christ, holy and pure here today, now. And one day our king will return. And that might not be 100 years from now. It might be today. And the other reason I believe it's 1,000 it's because the number three in Revelation, but also throughout the Bible, is a very important symbolic number. We know that three often represents God. Even when Satan's mimicking God and mocking God, he shows up in the number three. We have a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. Well, I know this is simple math, like one-on-one, but what do you get if you get ten times ten times ten? A thousand. And 10 throughout Revelation is a number that stands for completion. I don't believe that, that John is trying to tell us to literally count off a 1,000 24-hour periods. I believe he's trying to tell us this is a complete span of time when Satan will be bound. And it doesn't matter if I'm wrong or if I'm right. I'm just telling you where I land. But here's the bigger question. Because if Satan is bound, it doesn't feel like he's bound. I mean, honestly, isn't that the bigger deal? I mean, when I turn on the news and people are murdering each other, people are addicted to drugs and sin is running rampant, marriages are falling apart and there's adultery all over the place, when these things are happening, does it really look like Satan is bound? So what does it mean that Satan is bound? Let me give you three things. It means more, but here's three things that I believe Satan is bound today and here's why. Number one, Satan is bound because he's no longer allowed in heaven. What the heck was he doing in heaven anyway? He was accusing you and me, the saints of God. Go read the book of Job sometime, and you'll find this is my version. I've said this before, but uh, Satan shows up in heaven, and God says, hey, Satan, you see my servant Job? And, God, and Satan says, well, yeah. The only reason he worships you is because you bless him. Remove his blessing, and it'll curse you to your face. And God says, no, he won't. You can go and do this, Job, but you cannot hurt, or sorry, Satan, but you cannot hurt Job. 
Satan goes away and literally kills his kids and, and ruins Job's life in every possible way except he leaves his nagging wife with him. True story, I didn't make that up. Job knew how to, or God, Satan knew how to punish Job. And Job won't curse God. And Satan shows back up in heaven to accuse He says, the only reason he didn't curse you is because you didn't hurt him. Everybody, this is my interpretation, everybody can be selfish. You took away everything outside him. You hurt Job, he'll curse you to your face. No, he won't. Go and do it, but do not kill him. And Satan inflicts Job from head to toe in painful sores. Does this sound like your life at all? You have an enemy, he hates you. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And God, for whatever the reason being, gives him permission to do so. However, notice this. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's triumphed over Satan, and he sends out men, disciples, paired up in twos, and they go, and they start healing people, their bodies, and they start casting out demons, and they start putting people's lives back together through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they come back, and they say, Jesus, Jesus, it's amazing. Even Satan and his demons have to live. Listen to us, and Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven today. In other words, in the ministry of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, which culminated on the cross of Christ, Satan was no longer allowed to go into heaven and accuse those who love God. Look at this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, it has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth to the one who accuses them before our God day and night. He's been cast out. He is bound and he's here and bound. He's no longer allowed to go up there because you are cleansed by the blood of the lamb. but he's here. So is he bound here? I think that's the second point. What bound means is this. Satan has lost his primary weapon of death and the fear of death over us. There's one thing every single person faces besides taxes. There's another thing. Death. And let's be honest, I don't know about you, I'm still a little afraid. I'm not afraid to die. I'm afraid of the moments that lead up to my death. I am. I'm a little intimidated. I'm driving down the road the other day, car swerves over the lane, and literally what goes through your head in a split second, uh, two things, is this it and should I swerve? (laughs) They were playing on their cell phone. Thankfully, they looked up and swerved back. And in case you aren't sure, I'm okay. (laughs) Some of you may argue that point, but notice what the writer of Hebrews says, chapter 2, verse 14. Because God's children are human beings... Made of flesh and blood, the Son, that's Jesus, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to get to here is this. All of us have one common destination. We're all going to die. And so all of us have a common fear. We're all going to die. And while we can rationalize and justify, wow, I'm, not, well, I'm just going to go into the ground. I'm just going to be a, a consciousness that'll die. The reality is we don't know. And there's a bit of anxiety about that. And the writer of Hebrews is saying when Jesus came, he literally took us away from Satan who held us captive to death and the fear of death and he made us in God's army. And now as a part of God's army, we don't fear death anymore. 
Man, I've talked to so many doctors and nurses who say Christians just die different. There's a peace. Not that it doesn't hurt, not that we aren't sad, but we have these mixed feelings, don't we? When we go to funerals to celebrate the lives of those of us we know who love God and are on the other side now, and we think to ourselves, man, I'm jealous of them. Because they stand in the presence of Almighty God with no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears, and I'm stuck here. But Satan is bound. Because now he doesn't have the control of death over everybody. This is why when Jesus raised from the dead, we sing that beautiful poem. Death, where's your sting? And death, where's your hurt? Where's your victory? All right. Number three. And I got more, but I only have time for three. Satan being bound means this. He lost his stranglehold to keep the gospel back from being shared. See, Israel was supposed to proclaim the goodness of God. They were supposed to be the holy and righteous nation who did everything that God asked them to do, and they failed, and they failed, and they failed, and they failed again. Just like many of us. But what Jesus did is he triumphed over our failure through grace so that the more we sin, the more grace increased. So no longer are we just like the other nations. We are a group of people who reign in Christ, white and clean and pure. But God went a step further. See, don't misunderstand. When you read your New Testament text, especially in the Gospels, and you come across those places where it talks about God giving good gifts to his children, he's not just talking about your big screen TV and your nice house, your air conditioner. Those are all great gifts that God has given you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit of God who is not just God with you, it's God in you. You have the power to do everything that he has called you to do because Jesus triumphed over Satan on the cross. So now when you become one with Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Satan is bound because he cannot stop you. You can get over that habit, that sin, that addiction. You can through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are now free, free indeed from all those things, those fears and those anxieties and those worries about how is everything going to turn out because you know that your king has your back. You could be free to be generous and live freely on earth, not held to the things of earth because all of them are passing away. And not wonder how it's going to turn out in the end. You know how it's going to turn out in the end. I love the way that Matt Proctor, president of Ozark Christian College, he says this, Satan is bound spiritually during the church age by the preaching of the gospel, which hinders his deceiving of the nations. We'll see that in Revelation 23 in a moment. As the gospel flourishes, satanic strongholds diminish and the dominion of darkness falters. Right before Christ's second coming, Satan will be unbound, succeed in greater deception among the nations, and gather them for battle. Then, in an instant, he will see them destroyed by fire from heaven as Jesus returns to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. Now let me show that to you. Revelation chapter 20, verse 3. The angel threw him, at Satan, into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. What? Like, God, if I were writing this story, I wouldn't end it like that. Why does Satan have to be released? In fact, let me just tell you real quick. The word must be, or depending on your translation, might say will be released. Literally let out of prison is the word day there in the Greek. It means that God has ordained that this must happen. Satan literally must be released because God has ordained that he must be released. So you can ask a question, question like, God, why would you do it like that? 
And here's my answer. So that God could finally and forever crush our enemy. Take a look. Revelation 20, verse 9. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Now, wait a minute. Part one, everybody gathers together with Satan who hates God to go to battle. This is one verse. Part two, fire from heaven comes down and destroys them. There's never a war. There's never a fought. There's never a war. I'm going to say it right. There's never a battle. Everybody's gathered together. All right, let's attack this God. Okay, done. Battle over. Well, that was the shortest battle ever. Exactly. How are you going to kill God? You can't. Now, if you think for a minute that Satan has won or Satan is winning, he isn't. And he's gathering together, yes, a massive army of people who do not love God. And they're on his side. And they will be destroyed. And they have an eternity that is set for them. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. As we move on to Revelation, we're going to talk about this thing that so many people do not want to talk about or hear about today, and it's called hell. And I'll describe it to you as the best I can from the Bible, not from my own opinion, and I'll tell you who's going there. And while I bet this is the Sunday you think I should not invite any family or friends, the truth is the gospel is the good news that we don't have to be there. We don't have to be on the wrong team. Look at verse 10. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I love the way Mark Moore says this. God will repay Satan for every evil deed he's ever done. He will face the full fury of God's wrath for sure. One doesn't have to be mean-spirited for ultimate justice to be comforting. Even in a secular courtroom, the crowd often spontaneously applauds when an insufferable criminal is sentenced. If I hold on to Jesus, he will right all these wrongs soon and very soon. So let me ask you this question. When will Jesus defeat Satan's reign over us? When will he do that? My answer comes right back out of Colossians 2. That's where we started. Let's take a look. Colossians 2, verse 10. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. What Paul is trying to get to in this passage, what Paul is trying to build is, he already did it. On the cross of Christ, through the resurrection of Jesus, he already made you complete. You're not broken and incomplete if you are outside of Christ. If you are outside of Christ, it explains why you're miserable and lonely and you can't figure it out. If you are in Christ, stop living like a defeated foe. Start living like you have victory in Jesus. Start living like your king is reigning in heaven right now. Start living like you have untold power and resources. God and the powers of heaven are behind you, not just behind you, beside you, not just beside you, in you right now. You have everything you need, Peter says, for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. Everything you need. When did Jesus defeat Satan? 2,000 years ago. 
he rendered him defeated. And now forever we who love Jesus will reign. And this is just the trial, the practice. The Bible prophecy is often in a matter of the, the already and the not yet. We live in it already, but we're not fully there. Last week, I challenged you to sit down with, with Jesus for 30 minutes and just hear from him. What does he want to do in your life in 2016? I told you I'd share my list because at time, I'm going to have to share it quickly. Some of these things are private, but I just want to give you an idea of what God's doing in me, and then I'll tell you what to do with it. So I just sat down with God. I said, God, what are all the things you want to do in me? Because you know what? I struggle with the reality of what I'm teaching you just like everybody else. I have my own anxieties and fears and failures and hang-ups and habits and all kinds of junk like everybody else. But here's some things, and maybe these will speak to you as you continue to tweak your list like I am mine. Here it is. Number one, I'm committing to doing a quiet time, just a time in God's word and prayer every day, six days a week. And I'm not allowing myself to go to bed and sleep without it. In fact, twice since the beginning of the new year, I've been up till really early hours of the morning because I was doing other things and I had to do it, had to finish it. And I also failed once or twice already. And by God's grace, he still loves me. So I get back up again and I keep going. I started a daily gratitude journal. I brought it with me, but you're not allowed to read it. I just found this at Marshall's and I bought it and uh, it's actually, it's, it's really toward God, but it's for my wife. She's not going to be here today in the service, so I get to say this and she won't know. This is her Christmas present, one of them for me next year. And every day, I just write a little paragraph telling her what I'm thankful for for that day for her. And all of you wives are jealous and I get it. Look, there's going to come a day, it hasn't happened yet this year, there's going to come a day where my wife is being difficult, and uh, <laughs> maybe she should keep a journal too. I'm going to have to write out something really nice about her because this isn't about venting, this is about encouraging. And um, okay, so for time's sake, I got to go faster than that. I, I moved out of the uh, 80s and into um, the 21st century about six, seven months ago, and I got my first space gear. And uh, I've got an iPad now and an iPhone. And like many of you, my iPhone owns me. And uh, my wife is often saying to me, put your phone down and be with your family. And I hate that because she's right. And no matter how defensive I want to get, she's right. And so I'm committing this year um, to when I walk in the door to put my phone down. And to not check it again until three things have occurred, or at least the first one. My wife gives me permission to check it. <laughs> number two, I've done my quiet time. And number three, my kids are in bed. I have a goal for our church to launch three new initiatives, three new ministries this year. I, I know what at least two of them are. I think I know all three, but I don't want to share them yet in case it doesn't happen yet. I'll share it when it's time. I'm going to do a daddy date with every single one of my family members and a husband date with my wife every month. I'm going to give Rachel a minimum of two hours a week to do whatever she wants and not make her feel guilty for having it. I'm going to clean the house for my wife at least one night a week, starting next week. <laughs> I'm committing to getting six hours of sleep a night, if at all possible, I'm going to invite five new people to Kingsway this year alone, minimum. I'm going to take three spiritual retreats, and I'm going to give my wife three as well. I've already got her first one scheduled. 
And my goal is to be asleep by 11 o'clock on Saturday nights because I often go to bed too late and leave myself too tired on Sunday mornings. The list could go on. In fact, it has gone on. I took my original list and I pared it down to these kinds of things because I started to ask this question, this question to me that was so important. If 2016 is the last year before Jesus returns, let's just say he returns the day after Christmas, 2016, that's right before the end of the year, how will I live this year to bring the glory to God in the areas that are most important to me, the ones that God's given me responsibility of? He didn't give me responsibility over Africa. He didn't give me responsibility over Denver, Colorado. He gave me responsibility over my family, over my church, and over my life and those are the things that I have to lead through so if this is it if this is a year how am I going to live victoriously and this is the big question so you need to sit back down with your list and you may need to change some things you might need to take some selfish goals off that are all about you and ask this question will my goals impact the lives of other people because when Jesus returns it's not going to be about the things you got done the tasks going to be about did you help other people's lives be better did you help other people grow closer to christ and did you grow closer to him as well look at colossians chapter 2 verse 13 remember where we started let's come all the way back there as we close you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away then god made you alive with christ for he forgave all your sins. In other words, it was finished. Verse 14, he canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. It is finished. In the same way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. It's is finished. So live like it's finished. Look, if you're coming here today, you put up with the snow and the ice, or if you're listening online, and you're asking this question, what do I do now? Because I believe that Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. Paul actually answers this question. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. I read 10 and I read 13 through 15. Look at verse 12. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. See, if you believe what I'm telling you, that's called faith. You believe that Jesus died on the cross. You believe he rose from the dead. You believe he's what you need. You believe he's your savior. That's called faith. When you have faith, the next thing you need to do is you need to get into the waters of baptism and be united with him. Paul's saying in the same way that Jesus went into the tomb and came out alive, you go into the waters and you come out alive too. And those dead parts of you are dead. Maybe today's your day. Maybe not. Maybe you need some more time to ask the questions, think about it, process. At the end of this month, on January 31st, we're having a whiteout party in here, and it's going to be awesome. And I'm calling you in this room, some of you who've never been united with Christ in baptism by immersion, not as a baby when your parents chose it, for you, because you chose it. This is your decision 
to maybe make that the day, a special day, when you say, I'm going to live victorious in 2016. Would you consider that? And if you're ready today, don't wait. We'll party with you today. We just don't have the white shirt for you. Make today the day. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. When I pray, we're going to sing. And while we're singing, if you're ready to give your life to Jesus Christ, would you come to my left? You're right, under that screen. And talk to our decision counselors who want to help you with this decision. Let's all stand. I'll pray. Father God, Lord, so many of us live defeated instead of living victorious. And when I say that statement, even just that statement, every single person in here who is living defeated knows exactly what I mean. God, would you help us to have right thinking so that we might have right living to follow it. You conquered the enemy on the cross. Now teach us, Father, to live victoriously in you. In Jesus' name, amen.